Welcome to the Above Board Podcast. I am solo again, but this time I've got Dr. Sherry Walling. She is the author of The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, and she has a new book, which we're going to talk about later in the episode. She's a clinical psychologist, a speaker, a podcaster, and she hosts uh, the Zen Founder podcast, which has been downloaded more than a million times. And she also hosts Mind Curious, which is a podcast exploring innovations in the mental health care, uh, with mental health care via psychedelics. And on top of that, you are also an entrepreneur. And your life's work is helping high-achieving people navigate painful and complex experiences. You do a lot of stuff. You're busy. You forgot to mention <laughs> I'm a circus artist, too. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, that's, that's remarkable. I mean, that's a lot of stuff going on. And, uh, Thanks for having me, Jack. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, this is so exciting. So in, in terms of where we want to go on this episode, for the listeners, we're going to talk about some businessy stuff, but get away from that and, you know, go wherever we want, really. So it's going to be a fun episode. So yeah, there's no, there's no strict format here, but we're going to go straight into burnout. I watched a video of yours with Nick Worker, and you talked about burnout, and it was, it was just, just fascinating. And I think more of us should be aware of this topic of burnout. Um, so I want to know, you as a clinical psychologist, what do you look for to diagnose burnout in someone? Yeah, burnout is one of those things that the term is thrown around a lot. And a mm. lot of people have a lot of ideas about what burnout is. Usually people talk about it as tiredness or feeling right. kind of overwhelmed at work, which it is. Uh, but we also have like 40 years of research into a, the construct of burnout. And burnout is a formal diagnosis. It's part of the ICD-10. You can have your doctor put a code in your medical record for burnout. Um, and I say that just to really help listeners know that it's it's a legitimate health concern that has some neurological consequences um, if it's not treated. But burnout in general has three kind of clusters of symptoms. The first one is um, emotional and physical exhaustion. That's that tiredness that people talk about when they're like, oh, I'm so burnt out. But it's the sense in which you just don't have any more passion. You don't have any get up and go. You're pretty fatigued in all parts of your life. And then the second cluster is a sense of detachment and cynicism. So this is where people begin to feel really disinterested in the things that they used to be passionate about. Maybe they feel cynical about their team. Maybe they feel sarcastic and cutting about their customers. Like they just don't care. And they um, kind of have this like hardened, angry, cynical side of them that takes over. Okay. So that, and there's one more. Yeah. <laughs> there's one more symptom cluster I'll tell you about real quick. And that's this uh, diminished sense of personal efficacy, which is this filter that sets in such that no matter how successful someone is or what's being accomplished in their work, they no longer see that. They really see everything through a very negative filter and feel like all of their effort yields nothing and gets them nowhere. So that's kind of the third component. Yeah, that's intense. So what would the difference be between burnout and needing a holiday? Well, burnout is, I think, a precursor to needing a holiday. Hopefully you don't <laughs> have to get that miserable to need a holiday. But what a holiday does provide is a reset for your body and your mind. 
I've come to think of burnout as a repetitive stress injury. It happens when you use the same circuitry in your brain over and over and over without rest. So a lot of us in our work life are doing the same kinds of things. We're having the same conversations. We're staring at a screen. We're using our words. Maybe we're writing. We're we're just solving the same kinds of problems. And so neurologically, we're overusing certain neurons and the connections between those neurons. So burnout does respond to rest because you are using a different part of your brain. And and so how do burnout and depression tie together? Are they completely separate things or can burnout bring depression on? How, how does that work? There's a lot of overlap in how they look and feel. One of the differences with burnout is that the cause is built in. Burnout is caused by your professional vocation. It is work-related. Right. Okay. Yeah. Whereas depression can have a variety of causes. Sometimes it's work-related, but... Sometimes it's endogenous, it's more based in your body, sometimes it's in reaction to stressors. So burnout is more specific to work. Okay, then. So th- those things you described, obviously they sound intense. People can feel them in kind of mild doses. Um, do you have any sort of general advice for prevention? So imagine someone's either in that position you described, and I feel like I've been there before, so that's a kind of mm. slap in the face there. But people that are starting to perhaps feel that way, what's your advice for for avoiding getting to that place? What should they be doing to prevent it? I love that question because I feel like prevention is such a better use of energy than cleaning it up after we are in a bad situation, a bad state. So uh, preventing burnout is um, relatively simple, actually. And Mm -hmm. it does involve neurological diversification. (laughs) What I mean is doing different things caring about different things, giving your energy towards different things than you do during your typical work day. So simply put, get a great hobby, spend some time with friends, invest your time and energy in something that is different than your work. Okay. I like that. And, and, so it's, and get it's a lot of sleep. A lot of sleep as well. <laughs> yeah. And is that eight hours? I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. People are talking different things now with sleep. Is that eight hours to you? Yeah, it's between seven and nine hours for most adults. And I know there's a lot of like sleep hacking and (laughs) creative strategies for sleep. Napping. It is such an incredibly important part of our brain health that I would probably not mess with it too much. Okay, so I, I wanna I wanna talk through my mindset a little bit with this um because I, I feel like I have been burned out before, never you know, diagnosed formally. So what I do is I'd be in the flow of things and because it feels so good, I would then push another four to five hours every night. And I'd do that for maybe a few weeks, sometimes maybe a month and a few months, and I'd suddenly lose my groove and I suddenly mm. not have any energy to do it and just just want to lay down and do nothing. Um and I always thought like that felt like burnout to me with what I was experiencing. But the mindsets that go around are uh, especially like, I mean, before I was working hourly, so that was a different story. If you didn't work, you didn't get paid. But the the mindsets that go are like, I need to work in order to to move forward with things. Um, so I, that's why I'm doing all these extra hours. It's very hard, I find, to shift over into this prevention mindset. So I suppose if someone focuses on prevention, they're ensuring that they can keep going with their pursuit in you know, entrepreneurship pursuit or whatever it may be. That's the counter to that kind of mindset of, I have to be working, more is better. How do you counter that mindset, I suppose, is my question. I think more is better if you work in a factory. 
And mm. your job is to like screw the right number of the maximum number of widgets on in a day, right? Mm -hmm. If you're working for quantity, then yeah, I guess more is better. But most entrepreneurs do some kind of creative work. They're problem solving, they're building something, they're designing something, they're creating something in some capacity. And that kind of work requires a really fresh, novel brain. And so a brain that's exhausted, even if you feel productive, a brain that's exhausted is less creative and it's less efficient. Okay, that's interesting. And I suppose you read different people saying different things and you know you've got that whole hustle grind, which I'm sure you, you hate as a psychologist, Yeah, um, where just work all the time. And even if you're a programmer, just writing so much code, um, yeah, that's a creative job. You're solving problems. Totally. Um, once you kind of get to this spot, though, of where you're feeling burned out, and imagine, you know, we're talking the worst of the worst, someone's in bed, they literally can't move themselves. Um, how do you actually fix that? So we just talked about prevention. How do you fix yeah. someone that's completely burned out and is just their life is their work and they want to return to kind of normality? What, what do you do? Yeah, this is a super unpopular answer, but it usually <laughs> requires uh, six to eight weeks of complete rest. Okay. And what, so, what is that? Depression, which is often sort of misdiagnosed as burnout or burnout is misdiagnosed as depression. But depression is the leading cause of disability in the world. So when people have to take time away, it's often because of that kind of experience, whether, you know, burnout, depression, the exact definition and diagnosis is sort of not relevant, but when people reach that point, like you're describing, where they can't function and they can't get out of bed and they don't like their life anymore, the only way to work with that is a hard reset. So hard reset being, um, in this scenario, it would be just rest. And, and would rest be exercise and, and I think there's a, a chap that says about playing, you know, playing frisbee, yes. playing football. That counts as rest, just rest from the stimulus of work we're talking yep. about here. Again, we're, we want to use your brain in a different way. Let the work part of your brain rest while the play part of your brain gets stronger. I like that. Uh, so, okay. So imagine that I'm in bed. I, I can't even make it to this call. Okay. Um, I can't take six to eight weeks off because, you know, that's absurd. I can't do that. And this is the mindset a lot of people will have had come up. If they're feeling this immediately, you say six to eight weeks, they're getting nervous, whether they're yeah. a business owner or, or whatever else. Yeah. What, is there a middle ground? Is there an incremental approach or does it have to be this kind of jump in the lake approach, if you like? Well, you gave me the like hardcore scenario of someone really not <laughs> being able to function. So I gave yeah. you the outer edge of what did, recovery yeah. looks like. <laughs> but I do think that if someone is like, wow, I'm really, I'm edging towards a bad pattern or I'm yep. beginning to feel burnt out. I know I'm not well. What do I do? And there again, I would suggest these really pretty significant changes to how you work, to how you spend your time that often looks like scaling back work hours pretty significantly, but then filling them with something that is playful and meaningful to help counteract the loss of that sort of work time. And the dopamine, right? You get dopamine from playing football and, and various Absolutely. other things. Absolutely. Does rest include sitting on the sofa, eating ice cream and watching Netflix? 
or should um, it be on a very case limited basis? <laughs> so, yes, I think sometimes great stories and great ice cream are wonderful medicine, but we're going to limit that to a certain number of hours per week. So I don't want people to confuse. Yeah, no, that that makes good sense for sure. Yeah. Um. So I think anecdotally as well, I find that when I try uh, try to not think about a work problem. My brain, my brain's stubborn and it will always solve it. And it's happened enough times to the point where it has become just hilarious because it's now a thing. It's like, oh, don't think about that. And it solves it. So um, I definitely could see that at a bigger scale being so unbelievably beneficial to your entire life, not just your work life, but to your relationships yeah. and everything else by taking time away or starting to take small amounts of time away uh, when you get into the prevention stuff. Um, no, that's interesting. So people at home listening, I think a lot of people are burned out from COVID being in the mm. same place, not going anywhere. I think in the U S you folks are kind of back to normal. We're, we're in Canada. So we're just mm. about there despite the accent. I am in Canada, but believe it or not. And so we're nearly there, you know, but that's, that's uh, done a lot of damage to people. Are you seeing yeah. an increase in burnout across, I guess, your clients or society? Yeah, I think there's a lot of mental health fallout from COVID. And burnout is just one of the consequences. I think people are feeling a lot of loneliness and isolation and to try to get back to social relationships feels tricky. So some of us liked the slowdown. And now right. that there's this expectation of like, oh, I have to go back to doing all of these things, <laughs> that can feel kind of like whiplash. Like, wait, no, I want to I want to go back to my slow, calm life where I didn't have a lot of obligations. And then other people, of course, um, are ready to jump back in and yes. are chomping at the bit mm -hmm. to just do all the things and see all the people and go all the places, but maybe haven't quite dealt with some of the grief or loss that they have experienced as a consequence of COVID, but it's sort of lingering inside. And okay. So, and there was, there's the joke that constantly gets, or whether it's a joke or not, is that the people with social anxiety are so happy about the lockdowns and they wanted to continue that sort of thing. And obviously like, sure, it's fun to throw around. I get that people are joking about that and it's, it's fun for them. Um, but like, I'm curious, it's just like, this show is almost like my curiosity as well. And because our audience are going to love all this stuff. What, what, what do you do if you have social anxiety? Do you, should you actually be doing exposure therapy or I don't know what it is, exposure, some kind of exposure or, or should you be like, what should you be doing? Well, when you use a term like social anxiety, that usually means that someone's state of anxiety is causing them trouble, right? It, it's impairing their life. It's damaging their relationships. It's damaging their, their occupational or career potential. So usually it falls in the category of problem, as opposed to if you had said introvert, which is like you know, if you're an right. introvert, sure, stay home and read with your cats. If you <laughs> are experiencing social anxiety, there's something that's getting in the way of the full functioning of your life. And in that case, yeah, by all means, get some help, get some coaching, practice pushing yourself toward different social situations with some support and help. Okay. That's interesting. Does that uh, make sense? That sort of distinction? Yeah. And I think I will apologize in advance. I've always been quite uh, kind of binary minded, like kind of black or white, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. So if I ask you these questions and I try and oversimplify things, I do, I do apologize sincerely because oh. that's just how I want some of the questions. No, so it's, it, that's a I real conversation. I like your questions. Um, so I want to move on to the making of an entrepreneur and I'll talk a little bit about my story and then I want to get into why people become entrepreneurs. So, um, 
So for my own situation, I think about what, what brought me to being an entrepreneur. And I think it came from the desire to having personal control, control of my situation. So I had a, I had a single working mum who was obviously working. So I'd be at other people's houses after school, on holidays, that sort of thing. And there was never really any choice there. And it's not saying that it was bad that I was there, but there was never any choice. And I always remember that if she was off work and picking me up from school, that I remember it was like ecstasy, like just her picking me up from school. And I remember that, like not a lot is remembered from my childhood. And like, okay, mm. I just don't remember it. But I, these little kind of bursts of it, I remember that, you know? And so I think for me, it's, and I saw her get made redundant two or three times. So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, for me, it's like personal control. I want control of my situation. You know, I'd have to then experience things like that. It's almost like a, maybe a protection mechanism Like try, in the future. How do I protect myself? It's something along those lines, I think. Do you see any common traits amongst entrepreneurs that take them to becoming entrepreneurs? And you're an entrepreneur yourself and obviously your husband is as well. And you've yeah. got like tons of clients who are entrepreneurs. So you've seen a few entrepreneurs. You've seen patterns. Yeah, I've seen a few in my day. <laughs> there are certainly some trends. So I I appreciate you connecting your early life to how you've chosen to spend your adult time. Because I do mm. think that's an important narrative that a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes are uncomfortable with, right? They want to be self-made humans and don't want to necessarily recognize the way that their early life has shaped the person that they've become. Um, but I do think a lot of entrepreneurs grow up with experiences of struggle in some way. Either they had something that they wanted to prove or someone that they wanted to fight against, right. or like you're describing, they felt shuffled from one thing to another without a lot of choices and control. And yeah. so as they were able to make life choices for themselves, they really wanted to index for freedom and for control. So I think there are some values that go into entrepreneurship. You have to, you have to want the freedom, right? Because mm. that's what you're trading. You're trading stability for freedom when you decide not to continue in traditional employment where someone else signs your check, but instead decide to assume responsibility for that. So I think all entrepreneurs are craving freedom and you know choices, control. And that comes from a lot of us. It comes from our early life experiences. So okay, so I may be headed down the right the right uh, area. I think you're going to be this, okay, Jack. This stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, no, this topic is so interesting to me. Are there any? Um, like, I think what do they talk about in psychology? Um, certain traits that can be, that can determine outcomes. Like, obviously, it's not that simple. But are there any traits that you think um, mean uh, like a bad outcome for entrepreneurship? You talked about the willingness to trade stability um, for freedom. Are there any traits that wouldn't make a good entrepreneur. So what's really hard about entrepreneurs, in my opinion, is that the traits that make us really good at entrepreneurship all have a big shadow side. They all have like a potential downside. So for example, um, a lot of entrepreneurs have um, a certain kind of relationship with risk. We're willing to take risks. We think mm -hmm. about risks. We are risk takers. And that's a really important and valuable skill or personality type that goes along with entrepreneurship. But there's a shadow side, of course, which is indiscriminate risk-taking or is <laughs> impulsively risk-taking or not managing that skill well. Similarly, a lot of entrepreneurs are able to 
kind of hop from one task to another pretty quickly. Like a lot of entrepreneurs have a diagnosis of ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity (laughs) disorder. Oh no, that's like super common, super common in entrepreneurs. But it's a skill, right? The ability to like, okay, now I'm writing copy and now I'm talking to my team and now I'm I'm coding and now I'm reading about marketing and now I'm listening to this podcast. Like our brains are just like, playing hopscotch all the time. Not everyone's brain works like that. So it's a great skill, but also (laughs) there's a problem when we have a partner who really wants us to focus completely on what they are saying and Mm. we're off thinking about like what we're going to do tomorrow. The struggle's real. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The ADHD thing's thrown me. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. My, my friend, Michael Freeman, um, is a psychiatrist who works uh, at UC San Francisco. And he's one of the people who's really done the most research on the mental health profile of entrepreneurs. And that tends to be the most consistent finding. Um, The entrepreneurs as a group are far more likely than the general population to have an ADHD diagnosis, which I'm (laughs) like, obviously, because a lot of entrepreneurs are really smart, but didn't do well in school. Right. Didn't sit down, sit still, follow the directions. They were off like selling candy in the hallways instead okay. of focusing on their schoolwork. I like when conversations throw me. Uh, this one does. I mean, I've, I'll be honest with you. I have wondered about myself. Uh, so like, how, do, how on earth do you diagnose ADHD in adults? I know in kids, it's they used to call it ADD and then they added in the H and then suddenly diagnosis when I, they're I different different diagnoses yeah okay so how do you diagnose in i'll ask in adults because our listeners are adults and not not for people to self-diagnose but yeah. what should you be looking at how do you observe that yeah i mean there are a lot of uh, me- like observational measures that we use it's really the same process in kids so if you're going to okay. diagnose a kid with adhd you usually have like a teacher fill out an observation form and the parent and the child themselves mm-hmm. and the same thing really happens with adults like self-report there's a set of questions like do you struggle to complete tasks do you have you know, multiple projects going at once, sometimes you don't complete them all. (laughs) Um, So there are structured interviews or structured surveys that help to clarify whether you meet the diagnostic criteria or not. Yeah, it's going to stick with me for a few days now um, because you've given concrete (laughs) examples of where those those traits of ADHD or they surface in entrepreneurs. I'm instantly thinking of people I know and it's really funny to think about. It's a tricky conversation though because sometimes I think people you know, like the diagnosis has a negative connotation. Yes, it does. And I really want to make the point that it's actually like a superpower for entrepreneurs. It's really helpful, but it also has some downsides. So you want to you want to understand the benefits and the downsides of having a brain that works like that. And uh, I have to ask for your, if you don't want to give it, then fine, but your, your non-medical, medical disclaimer, this is not medical advice. Um, would, if you were diagnosed with ADHD or, or perhaps your kids were, would you opt for Adderall, the medication, that sort of thing? Or would you go alternative measures? I'm trying to keep this away from medical advice. Yeah, like your yeah, personal, yeah. Right. Um, My, just as a human... I ask the question of like, how much is someone suffering? So it's sort of like your social anxiety question earlier. Like, how much does it get in the way of the life that you want to have? So if Mm. you have 
a high level of ADHD and you really want to go to medical school, you really need to <laughs> sit still and focus for those really long exams, mm -hmm. then that might be a really wonderful tool for you. If you have ADHD and you want to be an entrepreneur and you're running a startup, it may be that it doesn't get in the way. You know, it's not a so I, I will I look for the suffering, how much pain mm -hmm. is present, and then what intervention is going to best match the presence of the problem. Oh, I love sometimes that. it's that, medicine, yeah. sometimes it's not. No, that makes complete sense. Again, me looking for a binary answer and it's actually very <laughs> nuanced, which is which is is nice to hear. That's a hard thing about like the mental health conversation in general. It's almost never binary. Even though we have these diagnoses, all mental health diagnoses exist on a continuum. Is that is that the whole spectrum thing they talk about? Even with things like autism, they talk about a spectrum, yep. right? Yep. Yeah, even okay. depression is mild, moderate, severe. There's not it's not like you are depressed, you are not depressed. Like all of us are sort of like a little bit depressed given on, depending on the day. And so mm, that's yeah. where it is a very nuanced conversation. Oh, okay. I'm already learning stuff. This is amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I want to, I want to move on to, um, a more, a more controversial topic and talk about psychedelic drugs, which is something people won't be expecting on this podcast. Um, you know, we, we think about these things as, you know, psilocybin, you jump out of windows because they think they have wings and you hear all these stories and you, your parents tell you not to touch them. Well, obviously it turns out that these, you know, magic mushrooms, DMT, LSD, all these various hallucinogenic or psychedelic drugs may actually be crit of critical importance to what we, what we can do with mental health and, and the, the sort of yeah. treatment we can do. Um, what is psychedelic assisted therapy? Yeah. So... I'm glad you are talking about this. I think it's an important thing for people to be literate in. It's been on the cover of Time Magazine, the New York Times. Like It's part of the conversation around where the field of mental health is going. So it's mm -hmm. great for listeners to just have like a heads up. By the way, it's coming. Um, Psychedelic-supported or psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is a course of treatment with a therapist or clinician that involves the utilization of often a fairly high dose of a psychedelic medicine. So this has been most researched with MDMA, psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, and ketamine. We have lots mm. of research on how those three medicines work in the context of therapy. So it's, they're really interesting. Usually they're a course of therapy that might last three to six months and involves a series of what might look like pretty traditional therapy sessions, you know, you talking to a clinician. But interspersed in there are a couple of medicine sessions, which are long, full days in which a psychedelic medicine is administered and people are talking through or experiencing or confronting their challenges while under the influence of the medicine. Okay. And, and so we get into this interesting topic, which, which I've been interested in for a long time. Um, I've, I've, I've listened to, I think it was Dr. Feidemann, who was doing the original LSD studies in the 60s. And there's a famous story about the government banned them. I think it was the Nixon regime banned them. And they said, they put the letter in the drawer and said, we got this letter tomorrow. And they carried on with their studies. And this wasn't for mental health. This was for problem solving, wasn't it? Uh, um, they, they were doing seeing if these drugs would help with problem solving, and they found they did. And obviously you know, these drugs were made banned. So we're now seeing a return in the mental health space. Um, 
why why do drugs i mean i think i know the answer but it's a yeah. very inexperienced answer why do drugs help people in therapy why do these drugs help people in therapy yeah so just to set the stage too not only are they returned but they are returned in force legally so too right in the in the course of the last few years, there are 80, 80 new psychedelic centers of study or research Wow! at places like Yale, Harvard, mm. yeah. Berkeley, um, McGill, mm. you know, there's Canadians are in on it too. Um, <laughs> so it's a very, very legitimate form of intellectual curiosity and research. So- the way that they work, and I'll talk about MDMA um, primarily because I think that will be the first one that is widely legalized for use mm -hmm. in psychedelic therapy, which probably will be within the next 18 months. Like it's very close. It's in the third phase of approval um, from the FDA, which is wow. the the body in the U.S. that, uh, you know, approves the use of different medicines. So MDMA specifically is really helpful because it essentially impairs the functioning of the amygdala. So temporarily diminishes the functioning of the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that works with stress and negative emotion and fear. At the same time, MDMA increases levels of oxytocin in the brain and levels of serotonin in the brain. So very simply put, someone is able to talk about, think about, work through a traumatic or painful experience without experiencing fear, but instead experiencing high levels of empathy and connection. And so it basically like fast forwards what we've been trying to do in talk therapy, which is to help people feel safe so that they can work through painful things where they feel connected and respected and, you know, safe. Um, we're sort of neurologically overriding that, and it allows people to heal. This is amazing. So MDMA is obviously one. Um, ketamine, they were talk. I heard talk about this, and but there were downsides to ketamine. So they're trying to extract the good parts and not have the bad parts with ketamine or something like that. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, ketamine is used in a variety of different ways. Sometimes it's used as an infusion. So. Um, more of intravenously. And in those cases, um, it's pretty effective for very difficult to treat severe depression. Um, de ketamine can also be used in smaller doses where people are a little bit more lucid and are sort of talking through something while under the experience of ketamine. So ketamine, um, it's not necessarily a downside. It's just a tricky thing about ketamine is that it can be very dissociative where if people feel a little bit detached from their body. Mm. That can be really therapeutically useful, but it's also kind of tricky um, to do therapy with someone when they're, they're not fully present maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. So, because we're talking about these drugs and I think of obviously talk therapy, but I think of mm -hmm. the concept of a minder, someone who's there, um, someone's perhaps doing a, a drug trip you, you read about, and then someone's guiding them through. Do yeah. I, just so I understand correctly, you are doing talk therapy with someone who's just more susceptible and not experiencing that pain. So you still do your regular therapy. Is that correct? Well, it's not really regular therapy in okay. the sense that 
So I have, I've been trained by MAPS, which is yes. the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. That's awesome. It's, it's much more embodied than talk therapy. So people mm-hmm. are experiencing a lot of sensation in their bodies. Often people may want their hand held. It also lasts like six to eight hours. So it's just like a, it's like a deep dive. It's sort of like the, it's like the mental health equivalent of a surgery rather than like going to get your checkup from your primary care. Okay. And um, a few other drugs. And again, this topic I've always been fascinated by. Um, a drug like DMT or ayahuasca, I think you can go to South America, I think, and, and do ayahuasca. Are these drugs of interest and just not being studied or perhaps they're not as mainstream or not getting as mainstream? Are they still drugs of interest? Even LSD, are these still drugs of interest? They are. So when we're thinking about how to roll something out in the medical system, there are a few things that we're aware of. So LSD um, has very, very strong research support for its benefits for mental health. Mm. The challenge with LSD is just a really long day. So it lasts really a long time, which Mm. just very practically is challenging if you're going to do it in a medical setting. Right. Okay. You know, people work eight hour days. LSD doesn't usually confine to that. (laughs) Um, Interesting. DMT um, also I think is, is more of a concern in terms of how to access DMT and synthesize it effectively. Okay. So psilocybin is cheap. It's easy. Everybody, yes. <laughs> everyone can grow psilocybin in their closet. You know, it's just easy to access. MDMA, LSD, those things are made in a lab. Ketamine's made in a lab, and it's you know been around forever. Um, the toad, you know, the like toad venom, ayahuasca, iboga. These are things that have to be harvested from places and are not always easy to access sustainably. So in terms of rolling it out at mass scale, it presents some interesting conundrums. Okay, that's a great answer. I mean, because, yeah, mushrooms are easy. You think about uh, mescaline would probably be harder. That's from a cactus, I think. I don't mm-hmm. – um, oh, this is this is fascinating. Yeah, I don't even – where do I want to go with this now? So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just a lot to take in, isn't it? So looking at how it actually can be factored into mental health care and that sort of thing. I think with DMT as well, I've read stories where people say they get guided round to the start of the universe and they come back from it feeling quite often good, but mm-hmm. there's no input from a train from a therapist. Perhaps there's some aftercare, but it's not the same as what you described with MDMA. So, and also, do you know what's going on in Canada right now with regards to our drug policies and drug laws? Do you pay attention to Canada? I do a little bit. So, yeah. They're changing quite quickly, right? M- yeah, more magic mushrooms are in a grey area. They're being yeah. sold in BC, legal, not legally, but it's sort of not illegal because the police aren't doing yep. anything. And the logic, I think the logic is that if if someone tried to prosecute them for selling it, it ends up charter litigation, with charter litigation, right? Which is Canada's, I guess, Bill of Rights, or I don't know what the equivalent would be. Mm. And then if they can then prove that it's beneficial for, I guess, their, their life and everything, which they can, we know they can, then it becomes legal. And mm-hmm. a similar thing happened with cannabis as well. Cannabis was being sold for years until it was legal. So Canada's quite progressive on that front too, which is uh, very interesting to see. It's it's really interesting to see how different places are are rolling out these new policies because, you know, there's certainly, there's a whole conversation around decriminalization, which is different than legalization, which is different than medicalization. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And in medicalization, we're really talking about like getting your health insurance company to pay for it just as you would, you know, your SSRI, your Prozac. And that's, that's really why I get so excited. I've, I've seen the side effects of various drugs taken for things like depression. And, um, I've seen like people have described them and said they felt like killing themselves and this is no joke. And you think you've moved to topics like MDMA, it just MDMA assisted therapy. I get excited because it means less suffering, you know, and you you talk about what's there's, I could geek out on this all day. So I'll just tell you one more quick story, but (laughs) there is a recent public or a recent article came out in the new England journal of medicine, which is high-level, high-authoritative journal that compared psilocybin for treatment of depression to um, a classic SSRI, which is sort of a standard course of treatment. Mm -hmm. So both were effective at alleviating depression symptoms. But what was really cool about psilocybin is that it didn't diminish the full range of emotional expression. So Let me back up and say SSRIs work by kind of turning down affect or turning down the range of emotion. So your sad is less sad, which is good, but also your happy is less happy. Not so good. Psilocybin was more effective in being able to turn down the sad. So your sad is less sad, but it didn't diminish the other end of the spectrum. So there was no compromise in someone's ability or capacity to feel joy or happiness, which is huge for people who have depression. Because one of the main complaints that people experience on traditional psychiatric medicines, and sometimes they're life-saving, I'm not against them, but is that they feel a little numbed out. Sure, they're not depressed, but they're also like not that joyful. And that's that's kind of a weird middle ground. I feel like that's not good enough. So psilocybin potentially has the power to, or not potentially, like there's strong research support, New England mm-hmm. Journal of Medicine, to say that it helps with the depression without diminishing the positive effect, which is really important. And the final thing before we get to grief, and this isn't psychedelic related, what's the word on cognitive behavioral therapy these days? Because I've I've read things about how long term it's not that effective. You're the expert in the room. Like, what do you feel about that? I think it works for a lot of people. Yeah. I use cognitive behavioral strategies a lot. Yeah. I think what's happening though, or what's tricky about mental health, and let's get back to our earlier discussion about sort of binary thinking or black and white thinking is that for a long time, mental health professionals have tried to be legitimate medical providers. And we are, and we should be. But the work that we do is a little bit more difficult to research. And it's difficult to sort of prove efficacy. Because like I said, depending on the day, all of us are like a little depressed, a little more, a little less. It's much harder to have a controlled clinical trial like you would with (laughs) a diabetes medicine. Yeah. But cognitive behavioral therapy is the easiest to use in a in a clinical trial because it's very manualized. It's very strict. It's easiest to give someone the same treatment consistently across a group of people, which is what's required for a, you know, a clinical trial. It doesn't mean it's the best form of therapy. Um, It just was really popular for a while because it was easiest to rationalize from a research perspective, which is of course not the only way to know something. 
So and it's not bad. It's just, you know, only part of the story. No, that makes complete sense. Again, me trying to be binary. I, I heard something the other month about some, planting something in someone's head that could be remote controlled by a therapist to give them relief from their depression. I don't know if it's electrodes. Or I don't know what it was. Have you heard anything about that? Sounds Is this great. Um, I will. I don't. <laughs> not. Not really. Not in a way that I could weigh in on it. Maybe some neurology thing that they're working on, but it's exciting though to see all of this stuff happening because mental health is becoming more of a, a thing. We're needing to have these discussions publicly so people can recognize that certain yeah. things might be happening to them and, and that sort of thing. And there um, hasn't been significant mental health innovation in a long time. I mean, SSRIs are 40 years old. So we haven't had like really interesting new opportunities. Um, so I'm really glad to see all of this innovation. I think it's long overdue. No, that's, that's, and it's, it's actually the fact that you are qualified to do the, some of this stuff is just, it's huge. So thank you for doing that. That's awesome. Uh, so let's move away from the kind of the hippie, the psychedelic talk, whatever you want to call it to, uh, <laughs> to a more intense. I call it cutting edge medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. So on to grief, a more, a more intense topic. Um, I watched your promotional video for your new book and you said, uh, one grieving heart recognizes another. And I felt that so hard because anecdotally, like, when I've met people that have gone through grief, I like relate to them, even though mm-hmm. you like, feel the instant connection because you've shared that same trauma, I suppose. And it, not, yeah. not, and yeah, and it's like my dad died when I was 14 or 15. And then my mum died, which is 53 in 2017. And so I found my, my dad dying. He was sick for a lot of his life, right? So mm. I could accept that easier because, you know, he was sick. My mum mm. died effectively out of nowhere. Hmm. And that, like, I was always chill with death. But because it didn't feel justified, I had a way harder time, you know. Yeah. And at 53, that's young. And so that that was really hard for me. And my wife has a, you know, um, grief counseling background. She's told me you know, cycles mm. of grief. And, and I'm thinking, oh, cool. It'll be one, two, three, four, five, six. And it's not, I'm going everywhere. I'm going back to stages and it was yeah. intense. And um, so so that was my story. And I obviously it, t- it takes, you never ever get over it, right? And we're going to we'll talk more about grief, but you never get over it. You just have to learn to live with it and learn to accept it, right? Yeah. And so your experience is your dad passed away in his 60s, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and your brother committed suicide and, and like your dad died far too young and then suicide, choosing to end a life, like that's awful. And, and so I, I can't even, you know, you go through those, what could I have done to have stopped this? You must've gone through that. Like maybe yeah. not cause you're an expert, like, but I went through that and I can't even sure. imagine going through that after a suicide. You just must think of all this stuff. And like with your book, I was reading you describing it and it, it reminded me of, of Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning in the sense that writing about his experience and then developed something positive from it and then had the book and it was just skin in the game kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt when I was reading about your book and, and I actually going to order your book. My wife wants to read it as well. She's interested in, in a lot of that trauma stuff as well. Um, yeah. can you, can you tell me the story behind the book and, um, when you started writing it and why you started writing it? If, if you're, yeah, you're able to? of course. The, so the book is called touching two worlds which is a little bit of a nod to what you're describing about how grief doesn't really go away. <laughs> like you don't really go through these nice, neat stages. Yeah. So my my feeling or my experience of it is that I'm living in grief and then I'm also living this great alive life, right? I, I'm sort of like in two places at one time, especially 
from me as a parent with children and I, mm. I'm, I'm helping people grow into the world. Yes. And then the next week I'm helping someone die. You know, I'm sitting with my dad as he's dying. And so the mm. ability to like be in two worlds at once is sort of how I came up with the title. So I started writing um, shortly after my dad was diagnosed with cancer because he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, the kind of cancer at the state of cancer where we just, it was pretty inevitable that he was going to die. It was stage four metastatic cancer by the time he was diagnosed. And I started writing for myself. I started writing because I was awake at two in the morning and kind of like circling on all that was happening. So writing was helpful. It was, it sort of started as my journal. Um, But as time went by, I would write a little thing and I would maybe put it on Facebook just as a reflection about what I was learning and what was happening in my life. And people would really respond. Or I would write a little thing and I would send it to one of my clients and say, hey, I don't know if this resonates with you, but our conversation reminded me, here's how I've been coping with this. So I would just sort of share these little snippets. And then I just kept writing, right? As my dad got sicker and sicker and eventually died, my brother was really struggling with alcohol abuse. He was in treatment, out of treatment, in treatment, out of treatment, that whole merry-go-round of horrors. Um, And then he eventually died. And by the time um, he died, I had a lot of writing done. And so I was invited to give a, a little talk about what I was learning um, at a at an entrepreneurial event, and I ended up talking about my brother's death by suicide, and sort of like you know scared everybody. Like everybody's like, "Oh no, she's you know it's sad, it's scary, it's hard." Uh, yeah. But again, people responded to the reality of that kind of pain. Um, anyway, anyway, that it it just encouraged me to think about whether or not it would be important to share the story more broadly, and so that's how. I started begin to wonder about putting all of this writing into a book. Okay, and I love the way you described that you don't get over the the people dying. You never get over it. You have to learn to live with that 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 void almost. But it's like you can't just fall into that void and just have your life fall down. And yeah, yeah. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a kid at the time. But you talk about kids. You have those responsibilities, and you have to keep it together. Um, I think that's interesting. Uh, what you what you're talking about that though, just because. People think that you grieve and you move on and you kind of get mm-hmm. over it. People that haven't necessarily been through it or perhaps a grandparent who's perhaps, I mean, everyone feels differently, but when my nan died in her late 80s, it was sad, but I was I could accept that. You know, I know not everyone's like that, so I don't want to simplify this. Um, but I still feel like that 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 void is always, oh, not void, void is maybe a bad word for it, but that those two worlds, the the, the touching of two worlds, so you live with that and it, it becomes less intense by the, and I'm going to say by the every few months or maybe by the year, because it's not something you can really express to, to my knowledge. I mean, talking about it helps, but, um, and you have to learn to live with that. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I hear your story and I just, you think about people talk about selling their businesses as grieving. I just, it makes me laugh because it's like, it's not, it is, but I, it's not the same thing, is it? It's, uh, it's very different. Um, so like, what do we do that with fresh griefs happened? You know, we feel horrible and, and we don't actually feel horrible right away. Perhaps we're sort of maybe in shock. I remember when I was told my mum was nearly, nearly dying, I was like, oh, wow, I don't actually feel, feel like sad. I feel like I feel I can t- handle this, you know. I remember feeling that and I was like, oh, I'm really shocked. But it was, I was probably in shock. 
And so fresh grief, what do you do to process that grief and, and move forward? Well, I don't think we have to worry about processing and moving forward. I think the challenge is really to be present to what's mm -hmm. happening and to recognize that grief is nonlinear. And so as you're alluding to, sometimes people feel great. Like there's things to be done. There's work to do. There's people to yes. help. There's check boxes. There's forms. There's paperwork. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so sometimes the first like even like two to three months, you know, yeah. you're like organizing and yes. active. Yeah. And then maybe at six months or for me, it was a it was a one year mark that it just oh. hit me like a truck. And it was yes. like, oh, all of the all of the anniversaries are gone, you know, like, oh, yeah. so the nonlinear nature of grief, I think is really important to recognize. I also think it's important that we talk about grief, not as like a problem to be solved. Like it's just, oh, like that. Yeah. it's okay. love. It's, it's a love story. It's an expression of love. Like it doesn't have to debilitate you or disrupt your whole life, but it's also not a pathology. It's something that is that happens to your heart when you love someone or something and they're no longer with you. Interesting. No, I, I like that. That's much better than where I was going with the whole <laughs> void in the life. <laughs> what quite, do we do about quite, it? I don't know. Yeah, Take MDMA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's, uh, that's interesting. Okay then. So, uh, and not to, like, I, I want to bring business into this a little bit, but uh, grieving is a sense of loss of something that means something to you. And, and that yep. can be, family members that can be your involvement in a business and that sort of thing so you don't work to get over it you you work to accept it to label it i'm assuming and and just just live learn to live learn to live with it yeah go back and forth between the feeling of grief and the feeling of joy and i don't i don't think that grief is a bad word to use for like the sale of a business for example because okay. of course i've worked with so many entrepreneurs who spend so much of their lives and so much of themselves to create something and when that goes away, even if it's a good outcome, there's there's loss. We talk it's about it with them. our children, right? Like empty nest syndrome or the empty nest experience when our kids right. leave our homes and it's wonderful and good and also sad. There's a loss there. No, for sure. Um, no, I like that reframing. Of, that's uh, probably helped me as well, just how I view um, with grieving and I hope it's helped our listeners as well. Um, the final topic, if we've got time, yeah. Um, is happiness and i had a conversation recently with someone who who got cancer and then she was unable to have kids and she never wanted kids but having that ability removed uh, it just it didn't feel good and i think um she had a lot of challenges there mental health wise and i started to think about what i'd do if i was in that position but how i'd re rebuild my life and because you know going through cancer is intense and and having something taken away from you like that even if you didn't perhaps want to have kids yet yeah, or have kids at all, it's still, it's still intense, you know? Um, how do you, how do you build happiness in life? Like imagine you're starting a foundation, you perhaps new, maybe you're not depressed, but you're, you're trying to rebuild or you're trying to, you're trying to build a, a life. And I think of um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which you may tell me has, has been debunked and everything, but you know, the, the pyramid of, of what you need in life. Personally, I find that I can have a single day with my friends and that will top me up for like a week or two. And if mm -hmm. I don't have any social time, I, I feel more down. Mm -hmm. So what, how would you build a, a happy, or, or if you want to use the word content, a content life? And, and even after traumatic experiences, how do you build that, that stability, that contentment? 
I think one of the keys to happiness and contentment is um, is low expectations. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so if 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 your heart is full after a day with your friends, that's wonderful. You're not requiring, you know, all of these like specific conditions in order to feel joy. So if you can truly feel joy when you walk in the door and your dog greets you and jumps up on you and licks your face and like if you can infuse your life with as many of those simple happy moments as possible and not be complicated in your demands or wants it doesn't mean you're not ambitious it doesn't mean you don't believe in what's possible in the world but your happiness that place in your gut where you feel warm and content and at peace that should come from very, very simple, easy to access kinds of things. Okay, that's interesting. So my follow-up question then, it's almost like you're alluding to, we shouldn't tie our ambition to our, our happiness, to our foundations. It's just that should be separate from our, our baseline happiness almost. Because I was going to say to you, well, how are you ambitious then? If, if, if you're happy with everything you've got, why don't you go, you know, never have any ambition? How do we deal with that thinking? Yeah, I think um, I think that it is a it is a different part of ourselves, like you're alluding to. There's like our basic core happiness and well being, okay. and I don't think that should be tied to our ambition. And then the ambition is the game, like that's the that's the fun, that's like the field we walk out into and see what's possible. So I want to be well and whole as a human, regardless yeah. of how successful my business is, regardless of how many people read my book, regardless of how many people download my podcast. Like, I need my selfhood to be separate from all of that. It doesn't mean that I don't think it's amazing when you ask me about my book or when people download my <laughs> podcast or when people care about what I think or what I'm doing in the world. That's It's frosting, though. That's like the dessert. It's not yeah, the okay. core sustenance. That's high up on the hierarchy of oh, going back to Maslow. Yeah. I tie a lot of my happiness to my success. I've never, ever, ever thought about it like you're describing, about how it how it is a separate thing. Um, yeah, you've hit me again. This is the second second or third time you've done this throughout this uh, this call. So you should have a core foundation away from your ambitions, career ambitions and whatever else and your goals and just look around you and find happiness in the smaller things. And don't let yeah. that don't let that become a big part of a big part of your foundation. Have it as like you say, yeah, the dessert, the um the, yeah, And I think that's where grief is an interesting teacher, right? When you know that not much is guaranteed that people you love can die, mm. that you can work really hard to create something and it might fall apart because Google changes its algorithm, right? Because <laughs> something totally outside of your control messes it up. Then you start to keep the cards of like deep joy much closer. And like, is this why we're seeing such a rise in depression? Part of the reason we're seeing such a rise in mental health and anxiety because we are told to pursue careers and these ambitions. And if our friends, like friends or people we know, are doing better than us, we become unhappy. And you think of social media, the highlight reel. I oh, feel yeah. like the formula is all wrong, and I don't think I've actually heard anyone talk about it like you're talking about it. But maybe I'm just not listening to enough people. But I think that's a, that's a really key thing. I just want to highlight to everyone listening is Sherry's basically saying detach your goals from your core happiness. And I'm sure some people do that, but if you're not, that's a 
that's a huge kind of flag. You, you should do that. Yeah, um, I don't want to tie my well-being to my Facebook status, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. How many people love me on Instagram? Like, oh, that's yeah. a recipe for heartache. Oh, that's amazing. Um, this this has been amazing. Cool. The, the final thing I want to ask, um, where can people find you? Um, when's your book coming out? Or if you've got a date for that yet? And, and anything you want to, to plug? Yeah, Touching Two Worlds is out July 12th. It is available for pre-order. So if people are like ready to click, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, like all the places that people buy books. Um, and then it will be in your mailbox or your audible account i guess um on the 12th of july and yeah you can follow me on twitter at sherry walling on instagram at sherry walling and i also have a podcast called zen founder z-e-n founder which is at zenfounder.com and if people are listening they're entrepreneurs can they work with you like on a consulting basis or are you moving away from that I love working with entrepreneurs. Okay. I don't know that I'll ever work away, <laughs> move away from it. But I, I am hiring a team of also like really extraordinary helpers. So we have experts in relationships. If you are an entrepreneur and you are in a romantic relationship or if you have a co-founder, we have people who are really good at that. So That's awesome. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about this wide range of topics. I really My appreciate pleasure. it. Thanks so much, Jack.